Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Simply Finance with Shane White. Today, I have a very eccentric guest, James Sowers, back on the podcast. Uh, he's been on once before, uh, a part of my Angel Investor Series today. Technically, is Angel Series number two. James has been number one and number two. Um, but today, we really don't, we kind of diverge away from angel investing and really go to what he is also well known for, and that is his expertise in cryptocurrency. So today, just to give you guys a little preview, uh, we dive into all things cryptocurrency, especially the craziness that has happened in that section of the market over the last year, uh, as well as he does a great job of explaining um, the background behind some of the stock craziness that happened a few months ago with GameStop and Reddit and all the craziness that happened on, you know, with social media and Robinhood. So hope you guys enjoy that. James is a fantastic guy. Every time I talk to him, I, uh, you know, I learn something new and I think you guys will love this conversation. Before we jump in, I do need to announce our, um, you know, headlining sponsor routine. Um, Jake Rhodes, who uh, was a a guest of the podcast uh, earlier on in my founder series. Um, he started this company and it's, you know, who we talked about on the episode. And to be honest with you, I've said it on here before. Uh, I talk about them, you know, before every episode, but um, just absolutely love their products. And um, I hope you guys give them a try. Just a few things about their, one of their newest products, which is called Morning Routine. Uh, it comes in a single serve packet. You know, honestly, in the morning, it's one of those things where I wake up, I fill a, uh, a shaker bottle full of water, tear it open, dump it in, shake it up, and I end up chugging the whole thing because it tastes so good. But just so you know, when you sleep, you actually lose between a pound and a pound and a half of water, expelling vapor, sweat, etc. Each of those packets I mentioned include a half an organic lemon, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, a little bit of Himalayan sea salt, all six essential electrolytes. And really the most important thing and what differentiates them the most from other products on the market is there is zero sugar. Right. I said that correctly. Zero sugar. There's no sugar in these bad boys. Uh, like I said, you just tear the pack open, dump it in a you know container of water, shake it, and you're good to go. Uh, routine, trusted ingredients, made convenient. If you guys would like to give Routine a shot, you can go over to your, Y-O-U-R, Routine, R-O-U-T-I-N-E, yourroutine.com. At checkout, use code ShaneWhite30, and you'll get 30% off your first order. Hope you guys check them out. They're fantastic, and um, I've loved that they're a part of the podcast. So uh, without further ado, we have James Sowers next up on the podcast. Oh, I love the background. Oh, uh, yeah, I thought there this was we... a good one for, for this one. I got a bunch of different crazy backgrounds. Bitcoin one, I think I had that with you last time. I got one with Poker City, which is a metaverse blockchain game. I got all kinds of love but it, I figured man. something like this. The Wall Street, I even made an NFT of Wall Street bet guy, but just one, somebody bought it for $58. <laughs> no way. I, w I was going to yeah. say, let's, we should just jump in because these are all the stuff I want to talk about. Yeah. I'm, uh, I think that's so funny. Did you, uh, have you been like, 
in the middle of all of that stuff? Yeah, so it's really funny because um, remember what we talked about before? I'm a big believer in habits, but and I, I'm careful about doing some of this stuff because I don't want to mess up my old habits. Sure. But I do remember recognizing with on Wall Street Feds and Reddit, GME, I was talking to some guys I know about, you know, it's like 17. I was like, with all this chatter, and it's short over 100%. Yeah. Of, I think this could double, you know, in the next year. I didn't think anything like it was going to do. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to buy 17. And literally, like, the next day or two days later, it doubled. And of course, I was stupid. I sold it because it hit my price <laughs> target. And then the next thing I know, I turn around, it's like $500. <laughs> that is so funny. So did you get in on like GameStop and all the fun ones? Well, that was the GameStop. It was at 17 when I, when I sold it at 40. And then I started noticing AMC was being talked about. So I said, let's get in that. But I waited till it was like five bucks. I should have did it when it was like $1.90. But then, of course, you know, I had what they call, I guess, weak hands. When it got to 12, I said, oh, wow, this is ridiculous. It doubled so fast. But then I found this one called Cost. And I said, oh, my God, the float is only like $6 million, And it's got really cool memes. I've never heard of this thing before, but it looks memeable. So now I'm getting this memeable strategy. What was it called? K-O-S-S. K-O-S-S. Okay. And, and it's, it's these old headphone sellers. I mean, I'd never heard of them before. Oh, I know I you're like, talking about. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, this is gonna this could be the next one. But of course I sold that too early too, but it went crazy. But it was kind of fun. But it's interesting because I've been telling people now, you know, not as like any kind of investment advice or anything, but really yeah. a meme is a strategy. Even in crypto, some of these memes that are joke projects and not just Doge, but other ones, they have ridiculous returns, like in the hundreds of thousands of percents if you get in early. Now they're all obviously probably going to zero eventually, but you, you get what so? I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it depends because I think if a project gets a true community behind it, gets like thirty thousand holders, and then devs start building on it, yeah. then it's going to become a real project. Like for instance, Doge was literally started out as a joke, but I believe it's like a um, soft fork of the Bitcoin blockchain on the Omni layer. I may not be technically correct on that, but I think that's what it is. And the guy who founded it came on Yahoo and said he sold all his Doge coin years ago because he just did it as a joke. And it just became this thing, a life of its own. I mean, because Shiba is cool. And um, now there's actually people building on Doge, and it is a true payment rail. So, I mean, it, if somebody really builds it out, it, it could be a real technology. It's just there's so many of them. The float is ridiculous. I mean, there's so many, like, I think it's hundreds of billions, if not almost a trillion. There's a copycat called Shiba Uno, and there's like a tri- trillion or 10 trillion. It's a number so high, I can't even calculate it. And people are trading that. And um, it spikes when like Elon tweets that he was buying a Shiba Uno. That thing went up like 300% in seconds. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I know. I think it's crazy that Elon can just like, you know, say anything. I laugh at him. And obviously, if you follow this, I mean, you follow uh, you follow Dave Portnoy and all that stuff too. Davey Day Trade well, and all I, that. I love, I love that guy. When he used to say <laughs> stocks only go up and he started calling, he said stocks and it became a meme. I mean, that guy's a marketing genius with bar stools. Marketing and then he got acquired genius. by Penn Nat. I mean, people like act like he's some whatever, but he, I, get, I think that guy's a genius. He, he launched his own podcast. I don't know if you've heard it. It's called The Dave Portnoy Show. And um, it's pretty funny because, I mean, you get a good sense of just like how good of a marketer he is. And then like all the, I mean, he's just so good at it. And so it's like, you realize it's a lot that. more than just the, just the like, you know, crazy I stuff saw, he says. I saw him. I saw him interview um, Vlad, and he said, "Well, I'm not going to wish you luck." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What did? What was your thought on all that? Because you, you, I know you're in the middle of all this stuff. What was? So what was I your thought? Because I'm on Robinhood, and I got paused have, on, on everything. Yeah, I have always said that that stocks go up or down based on supply and demand within the market structure. At the end of the day, and I believe you know everyone has good intentions. 
And unfortunately, due to clearing houses, changing their margin requirements, that can call you in the middle of the night if you're a broker. And Robinhood, I believe, has their own clearing firm, so that makes it even worse. And I don't believe anyone was prepared for the surge in all these meme stocks. And if you're taking on options and you're an options on market maker, you're taking on risk. You can take on gamma risk and all these other things. So if you can just say, hey, as a market maker, I'm not going to clear your trades. So now I don't know if this is the case with Robinhood, but it's very possible that they became on the hook the counterparty for all these trades. Well, my God, all these people on options and on leverage and all this, if this goes the wrong way, Robinhood could be technically insolvent. Now, I'm not saying they were at the time, but if it just keeps on going the wrong way. So obviously, if you're their clearing firm or whoever manages the clearing firm, it's internal to them, calls them up and says, hey, the VAR, value at risk, is kind of getting you know on the line. You guys need to put up more capital so that doesn't happen, You know, a market accident. And yeah. I believe that's probably what happened. And unfortunately, it probably wasn't communicated well to the users of Robinhood, who probably wouldn't really understand all that. But I think that Robinhood is such a call following before this that if a lot would have said, and he can't use the word liquidity, because you say it's a liquidity crisis in the financial markets, it's the end. Everybody just eat, could, runs you over like a train. Could you explain to everyone said, why that is? Like, why, why has that been such a, like, a term that they can't use? I think a lot of people that listen to my podcast wonder that and like don't understand that. Right. So I think real quick to finish what I was saying is if he would have just put out a statement, maybe his advisors or lawyers told him not to, hey, guys, it's internal things. It's kind of in the weeds, but I'm really on your side. So I'm going to have to do this. I'm really sorry. I think if he would have said that first, people would have understood. Yeah. But then he went out and did it and all these rumors. So, yeah, if you're in the, in the financial business, there's these things called counterparties. And interestingly enough, the other day, some hedge fund that's got some ridiculous leverage just blowing up because they're using contracts for differences. But a lot okay. of people don't realize if you're a high net worth individual or an institution or a hedge fund, you can get more leverage than the, than the regular retail account. You can get eight to one, 10 to one on certain things. Oh, really? And, and you can hypothecate assets. If you do it with more than one broker, you're not, you know, basically, I guess, transparent with them. Your leverage can get into the hundreds of one. So obviously, if a move goes the wrong way, you're screwed. But the counterparties are also screwed. So let's just say if you're a, a brokerage firm or institution, and one institution that your counterparty to has a liquidity crisis, you don't want to deal with them anymore. So you immediately cut off business with them because that's like, you know, fruit of a poisonous tree. It can infect you. And if yeah. there's leverage involved, you don't know who else the counterparties are, who's hypothecated what, what's really covered. So it becomes into a save my own ass thing. And just like in the case with this hedge fund slash family office guy, I, I, I don't know if it's true, but the rumor is like Goldman or someone noticed something was off first or they bailed out first but as okay. soon as one person bails out and a second person bails out Everyone's the rest gone. of the people are screwed you got to be the first one out and, and liquidations start happening and the margin call happens and it's a waterfall effect because nowadays everyone's in the same damn stocks people are on leverage and that's why you get these ridiculous moves up and down and they're so exaggerated because if you understand the market structure they're not really that exaggerated i think we even talked about market structure a little bit the last time yeah yeah and pe people don't get that that uh, supply and demand based on market structure but I am pretty happy that I've seen there hasn't been a market accident yet. I think we've almost had three this year. And what that says to me is that the market infrastructure they have right now with the stops in place, the circuit breakers, is working. If this was 1987, I think we would have already had a big a big yeah. accident. But what does concern me is, is there's going to be your unknown unknowns, that there's something that's not covered in mm -hmm. the infrastructure and the um, you know all the checks and balances that someone's going to sure. do that none of us have thought of, and that's going to cause the market accident that causes the cascade that causes all the margin calls and, and, the, gotcha. and the next crash of 87. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. How do we, like, I think it's funny. How, how did it take this long to have something like what happened with GameStop, from your opinion? Like, 
it just seems like the internet's been around for so long. I mean, it, and especially like social media, it's funny that it took all the way till, you know, basically 2020, 2021 to see this like crazy, you know, I don't know, backing of just like different stocks like we've seen. Right. So I think it was an, a number of things. I mean, first, we've never had. So Robin Hood, I give them all the credit in the world because they democratize trading. The other brokers have to lower the commissions. And I personally, when people say, oh, my God, I didn't know they were, you know, market makers were paying for order flow. Well, what do you think? It's free. It's not a charity. It's not a yeah. foundation. I mean, right. they have to make cat If it's not profits, cash flow somehow. So you are the product. Just understand but I do believe, even though you know they make a big thing about politics, yes, there's best execution, and I forget the term for the better execution. But okay. I believe many people are far better off by getting zero commission, and even if the flash traders are front-running your trades, which provides liquidity, look at all the people who made all that money in GameStop and were able to donate to different animals and things and pay yeah. off loans. I mean, that, that's life-changing for some of those people. But part of the reason I think we didn't have it, we never had a system like Reddit where everyone could organize, and a leader like that guy, you know, Deep value, whatever his name is, probably had an expletive in front of it. Yeah, he yeah. Understood market structure and was able to help those guys kind of in a in a friendly way, but not in a financial advice way. And also, I believe that COVID and stimulus checks and people sitting at home and didn't have anything to do, and there was no sports, so they started gambling literally in the stock market because they thought, you know, Robinhood's almost like a game, like yeah, fantasy sports or something. So and- easy to do. And I just got money from whoever they got it from, however they got it. And then also some of them might have been getting more money in unemployment than when they were working in a, in a lower paying job. So yeah. nothing else to do. And then one or two friends starts doing it. And then you become part of this tribe community on Reddit. And everyone just starts believing in this GameStop because GameStop is cool. A lot of people grew up with games. I mean, it's unfortunate with one analog to digital is ruining their business. But I believe, though, that that guy, Ryan Cohen from Chewy, and he's on the board. If he were to change over GameStop, take him analog to digital, Add in some other things that are more e-commerce, like Chewy, even add in things like NFTs and new technologies, GameStop, not advice to anyone, but it could be undervalued because it could be the same market cap as Chewy one day, which yeah. I'm not sure what the market cap of Chewy is now because the price of that's fallen since the stocks fell. But at one point, I was saying, you know, I know this sounds ridiculous, but at $500 a share, if that's par with Chewy, if Ryan Cohen tomorrow became the CEO and was totally pulling all the strings, I don't think that's so ridiculous. Even to where it got to? You don't think so? So I'm, I'm going by market cap because at one time, sure. Chewy, I believe, was like between 89 to, I think it was 89 to $100 billion company. Don't put me 100% on that. And, and I think it's $500 a share. GameStop was near that. And what I was saying was if Ryan Cohen took over today and they did a secondary and sold shares in the market and raised capital, so GameStop had the money to do all this stuff and innovate. Sure. I was like, why couldn't it be? Because the stock market's a forward predictor. You know, it's saying that the future of GameStop is better than the past. And even like really smart dudes like Michael Burry recognized when GameStop was like two bucks, that um, it was way undervalued. They, the likelihood of them going out of business was very low. He probably didn't think it was going to 500 bucks, but he yeah. might have thought, you know, for, he might have thought like I thought 40 bucks was reasonable. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I would agree. It was crazy. It was fun to watch, though. I got in on it a little bit. I was a little... Um, I was a little surprised. I mean, I know Vlad and then he did a bunch of different interviews. I just felt like I was a little surprised they weren't a little more, I don't know, like dumbing it down and just simplifying it for everybody. Kind of like what I try to do just because I feel like there's so many young investors that got on Robinhood for lots of great reasons. And I still use Robinhood. I love it, but it was a little strange. I felt like um, it took a long time and they probably wanted to be careful about how they came out and explained it. Obviously there's a lot of risk there. Um, 
what is your thought though? Like, do you, I don't know if you use Robinhood or not, but like, I know a lot of the platforms pause trading on those, uh, but I think they obviously got the most flack. Is, is there like, um, is there a reason people should leave Robinhood at all at this point? Or do you think, I mean, I know that's, that's so, a little political, I, I, but like, just from your perspective. This point, at this point, I would say if they hadn't left, they shouldn't. So I do have a Robinhood account and a Weeble. I call it Weeble, but it's Weeble. And I have a couple others. I have public. And then of course, I have, you know, actual prime broker accounts and accounts are a little more sophisticated. But um, people don't realize, too, like Fidelity, they don't necessarily rely as much, I've been told, on um, with a zero trade commission as far as, um, or even Schwab, to get the market makers paying you for the order flow because they have asset management businesses. They have prime brokerage firms. So there's things like Fidelity where you can have an international account where somebody can, you actually still have to pick up the phone. If you want to get a certain stock that's not in the United States, you pay a higher commission. There's all these settlement fees, oh, but you know, okay. it can be worth it for some of these asymmetric bets. And they have asset management things where they could charge 1% or different services where you can pay. So they have other ways to get revenue. Robinhood's a hundred percent payment for order flow was their only revenue because they're not getting revenue off of you other than Robinhood gold where they're charging subscription. Yeah. But yeah I, I think at this point though, not at all, I guess the information is out there. Vlad was put in like the worst of places. Maybe it could have been communicated better. I don't know how it could really be healed any better. I do know that like TJ Ameritrade and some of them came out, interactive brokers, that one founder guy came out and said, hey, our cl- they threw their clearinghouse under the bus and said, said we have to change things because when margin, and if you're a broker, you can change the margin limits yourself to your customers. Oh, okay. That, ha- that. that happens all the time. But what Robinhood did, and it's also common, is they made it that you can only POC, positional and close. I might be, be getting the, um, what it means wrong, but it's basically you can only close, you know, you can only close a position and not buy. It's just that there was so much rampant buying in GameStop and these yeah. new stocks that it got noticed. That has happened before, positional and close things when markets get out of hand. Oh, see, I guess but, man, I never knew that. Maybe I haven't been in the game long enough to know. Like, wh- how often does that happen? Like, I guess I've never seen it. Um, probably not the retail people at this level. But yeah, it's it's happened before to institutional players and in, in certain stocks. I can't think of any real instances offhand. But what people don't realize too, when I say history kind of repeats itself, like sure. the, re- the original meme stock stock is the um Piggly Wiggly in the nine. I believe it was 1922. They had some massive short squeeze, and then like the institutions or someone involved, I don't know all the rules or what happened because it was obviously 100 years ago, changed some of the rules, and it became a big stink back then. But now we have social media. Everything spreads like wildfire. Yeah. It gets sensationalized. Everything moves <laughs> so faster. But it's awful funny how history repeats itself with a massive short squeeze. With Nowadays, the Piggly Wiggly would definitely be a meme. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It'd be a great meme, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it, it would It would be incredible. But yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily fault everyone. I mean, everyone did the best they could. And obviously, if you're Vlad, you know there's going to be blowback because you have that following for what Rob, it's what I guess everything Robin Hood stands for, you know, taking yeah. from the rich, giving to the poor, helping out the little guy. But right. At, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how much money somebody has. You can always get into a situation where there's there's you need more money or something happens that puts you into a situation where you actually really need the money, even if, though you could have billions in your account or your personal net worth. If you get in an over leveraged situation or where margin can happen or something of that nature, it don't matter how much money you have. That's how rich people go broke because they're over leveraged. And when I say rich people, I'm talking about like titans, people that are worth billions. So, do, and that's maybe that's a good question because I had some people ask me about this. Um, do, do you? Do you, I mean, I don't know, I guess pe- people with like, like Titans, for example, like what you're talking about, do a lot of those people still like take huge margin calls? Like, is that still, I guess they just have more capital to throw at large margin calls so they can make even more. Is that like kind of, is that what happens? It just seems, I, I feel remember, like if I got to that point, I would maybe like 
not be as risky and just put some well, remember remember too though that um they can get better leverage too so for instance like on something like government treasuries you could easily get eight to ten to one leverage no one ever backs an eye well suppose oh, there was okay. some kind of black swan and went the other way like well and what happens with a lot of these guys is too remember let's say if you're running a hedge fund and let's just say some percentage of your net worth is in that hedge fund but you're also getting fees on billions of dollars which is a lot of income or cash flow coming in and then you get carry on results so hedge funds are taking you know massive risks relative to what a normal guy would do using leverage. So it's yeah. just like all those people shooting the GameStop. That was hedge funds ridiculously shooting over 100% of the shares of the GameStop. Now, there's a lot of incorrect things out there about over 100% of the float being shorted because it's actually illegal to make it short a stock. But market makers can have an exception, so they can do it because they need to hedge themselves. But what people also don't realize, and I think they need to change the rules, a stock can be shorted to float over 100% without naked shorting. So, for instance, let's say I'm a mutual fund like BlackRock, and I have shares in GameStop, for example. Well, yeah. I'm going to lend those out. And the reason I lend them out in the mutual fund because it brings in income to the mutual fund, which is to the benefit of all the people who hold mutual funds, which are people in their 401ks, pensions. So it's not like all oh, this is evil like it had been made out to be. Yeah. It happens it's... all the time. But what happens is they don't have a good system to track these shares, in my opinion. This is where I think blockchain really needs to be used. And I also agree with Vlad that settlement should not be T plus two, which used to originally be T plus five, and then got moved to T plus three and they're talking about changing to T plus one. I think it should be instantaneous using the blockchain, and that would solve an enormous amount of these problems. Yeah, but right now, there's no real good tracking. So let's just say if I'm Fidelity and I'm BlackRock, and I have shares in GameStop, and I lend them out to Melbourne Capital or some hedge fund. And then those same shares somehow get lent out to someone else. And I don't think any of this is intentional, and none of it's illegal. It's because what's happening is, is there's not a good tracking system. So when you go to find shares, because if you can lend out your stock and then call in your shares, theoretically. So if you have an account at some brokers, even as an individual over 250K, you can say, hey, I want to lend out my XYZ shares and get the interest rate that's really high annualized, maybe as much as 100%. And then one day you could say, hey, I want to call in my shares. The broker goes out, locates shares, and brings them back. I don't know if it's true, but I heard rumors people had a hard time locating where all these GameStop shares were and all this crazy. Oh, really? Because they've been so moved around so many times? Right. So that's what I'm getting at. It's just like and then when the mortgage crisis and the MERS system, nobody knew who owned what or had what. Yeah. I have a feeling a lot of that infrastructure caused a lot of these problems because it was so extreme and so fast how this GameStop thing happened. Right. That's why that we sense. need the blockchain and all so everyone can know instantly. I don't know if we'll be scanning a QR code in the case of shares, but you know, doing something like that where you instantly know where this share is or this piece of exactly where it's at, the discount yeah. holder. Oh, that's a good, a good point. Instantly. And that way, the same share couldn't be lent out. I'm just guessing because these things happen in financial markets like 18 times when you think it's only lent out once. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Well, this is, that's a good that's a good way to to switch gears here a little bit. So how do we how do people? I, I've you know another thing that I get a lot is just like people don't know where to even start to learn about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency. You're obviously a big proponent of of every, all that. I know you're in you're very involved with all of it. Can you just give everyone like the 30,000 foot view of like, if someone's like, asks you what's, what is a Bitcoin and how does it work? I know it's very complicated. We could probably do a whole episode on just how it works, but like, what's like a very simplified overview of what blockchain in, in Bitcoin is. Right. So the first thing I would say, if people are interested and they haven't gotten involved yet, because I think we talked about this before and the price of something is going up, everyone gets excited and they just jump, it's gotten, jump it's in without up so really, much since we talked last time. Without too. really, without really knowing what they're into some of the people. So right. the first thing, I mean, YouTube is great. You can learn 
enormous amount on YouTube and free education courses, but still use critical thinking because some stuff may or may not be right. But I look at Bitcoin, and I think we might have talked about this a little bit before. It's kind of like the money of the internet. And now I even kind of look at, at it as kind of like a Bitcoin savings account because you can get accounts with things like Voyager and with even a very low balance of Bitcoin. Now you're taking on account of property risk of an exchange. You can earn, you know, six and a half percent interest on your Bitcoin. Now I wouldn't put all my Bitcoin there, obviously, because there's kind of party risk, but that's better than earning zero in a savings account. Now, I know there's people like Michael Saylor, a very intelligent guy, from, you know, graduate from MIT, runs a publicly traded company that believes Bitcoin is truly like a bank account. So the market cap of Bitcoin, you know, is a little bit over a trillion. That, that's your way of kind of getting your share by putting your savings into that dominant digital network of money. That may not be his term, but that's the term I'm using. But okay. really, Bitcoin is, you know, they call it a cryptocurrency, but to me, it's like kind of becoming a reserve asset, ending on the balance sheets of corporates. And I think eventually, if the market cap gets high enough in the tens of trillions, it'll end up on the balance sheet of sovereigns, but the market cap has to be high enough to absorb it. But Bitcoin's basically like internet money, the reserve currency the internet, and it uses this thing they call proof of work, where the miners solve this complicated math problem. And um, once it's get a consensus, then um, everyone says, okay, all the blocks are validated in the history of the Bitcoin blockchain. That's a valid transaction. And it's interesting because in the beginning of time of Bitcoin, when Satoshi or whoever he is or the group or she yeah, invented right, it, right. you or I could have mined Bitcoin on our computers. But now the math gets so hard, they had to come up with eight sticks and people were using GPUs. Now you have to have mining pools because I guess technically you or I could try to mine it, but we, we would never solve any blocks because our compute power wouldn't be fast enough. And that's right. why you have the mining and the concentrated pools because there's a new cryptocurrency. Now I'm actually, I'm running a node. I might not pronounce it right, Chia, where you can mine. And I'm hoping it ends up like Bitcoin and I get it early. And oh, nice. I get some by mining it. Well, so you never know what these you things. There's a bunch of these yourself? things that pop up. So I'm running a node, so it's mining it on my computer, yes. Oh, very cool. What's, what's, what's it called? Chia, C-H-I-A. I'm going to write this down. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to get on it. And I, be I believe, I may be mistaken, but it, I think that's the one I'm doing where the founder of BitTorrent invented it, and Naval Ravikant oh. is either a big proponent or an investor. I may be getting that mixed up with something else because there's another thing, a new social network, where um you can do your own social token and i i joined that too so all this stuff is highly experimental yeah yeah, yeah. And, but it's um, fun probably just get in and diversify it's fun and it's good to learn too because just like sure. i tell people like with binance chain down they have these things called pancake swap whenever i go to learn about something there's also a cost to education that people don't understand so if i want to learn about something i realize i can make a mistake and lose some money or mess up with fees or do something wrong with learning about yield farming and things so like for instance i'm getting into pancake swap and binance now and I was teaching myself by watching YouTube videos and reading about it, how to change your MetaMask over to, I think they call it RPC URL to get on the Binance chain. But I said to experiment, I'm just going to buy one BNB for experimentation. That's like 300, I think it's like 370 or $350 a day, the price moves. And if I totally F up and just accidentally lose it by sending it the wrong way even, that's only 300 bucks, but it was education. And hopefully, obviously, that doesn't happen. And I start experimenting on pancake with these different things. And I may experiment just in speculation and lose that one BNB. But even it's not the end of the world because it's like education. Okay. Yeah. Now, right. now, I, now I know for, for some people, like $300 could be a lot of money. But I mean, you get what I'm saying, though. It's just the fact when people think about these things and they, oh my God, the cost is so high. We do this, that, or the other. Well, the cost of education when people go to college is exponentially higher than that yeah 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 right you don't get a lot of that back sometimes either so then wait so to back up a little bit is so can you what is the can you what's like the simplest way to explain the blockchain for people who so don't really know a ton about it right so the simplest way is at the very basic thing it's a database but it's a, but the blockchain the bitcoin blockchain specifically is a mutable database so everything that happens on there 
can never be erased. Now, they say in theory, if someone did a 51% attack, they could erase it. But it's my personal opinion that we're so far along now. If a 51% attack were to somehow happen, they couldn't erase the entire blockchain. It would be too hard. They might erase or reverse a block or two, or okay. something might go haywire. But I really think it's nothing's impossible, obviously, but it's next to impossible to erase the entire Bitcoin blockchain at this point. Got it. At like, this I, point. Okay. And, and it builds say, on well, itself, about, right? So every time right. all, Bitcoin's right. traded so or used. The more blocks used, there are, the harder the math is, the hash power rises as the further we get. So, I mean, it'd be really hard to erase that thing back to the genesis at this point. I don't want to say anything's impossible. And all these people say, well, what about quantum computing? Or what about this? And what about that? Well, when everybody usually thinks something's generally wrong, and there's also built-in safeties into the proof of work that even if the quantum computing figures certain things out, it can only figure it out for so many blocks, and the Bitcoin blockchain yeah. would adjust. And also, what right. I always say, too, no one ever says this. The biggest danger to Bitcoin is that the power grid went down. They turned off the electric. Then the miners oh. wouldn't be able oh, to mount any point. blocks. Yeah, 100%. But I always say if that were to happen, <laughs> I think we got a lot more to worry about than our Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say we got a lot more, but, right? That, that that's does the biggest risk to Bitcoin to me. Somebody turning off – you turn off all the computers and the power. Well, yeah, that's, that's a serious threat. And the Bitcoin and the Bitcoin blockchain is really valuable because it's backed by the computing power of the Bitcoin blockchain. And look at Amazon Web Services. Look how valuable that is for computing power. So yeah. just like to use the other term I was using, dominant digital network, a trillion dollar network. And it's like money, you know, Bitcoin is money, the internet of money, the internet of value. And people don't realize too, you can build on top of the Bitcoin blockchain on layer two on the Omni layer. And I'm not sure if Microsoft's building on the Omni layer, but I think it's huge now that there's an announcement that Microsoft's gonna allow some people to build some kind of applications using this thing they're called ION onto the Bitcoin blockchain. There's not okay. a lot of information about it, and it's new, but you know how people build on Ethereum and their smart contracts? Theoretically, yeah. you can do that, on, and I think technically on Bitcoin. The reason a lot of people haven't done it is because you don't want to clog off the network because people complain, well, Bitcoin's slow and it doesn't scale, but that's because it's so secure. That's actually a feature, in my opinion, not a bug. So we have to really be careful about clogging up the network and risking any security in it because there's upgrades coming like Taproot that's supposed to help the Bitcoin blockchain scale and be faster. And I hope that they're very careful and they're very deliberate and very slow in implementing these things because we definitely do not want to sacrifice the security of the Bitcoin blockchain. Right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, what do you think, uh, like there's so many, obviously, and you're wearing a shirt. I've never heard of that one. What's, what's Filecoin? Oh, so, so that's Filecoin. Yeah. That thing's been going bananas lately because I believe because of NFTs and IPFS, is a really good storage solution for people storing your NFTs. Oh, yeah, it's, it's it's a great it's a great project. Okay, didn't I haven't heard of that one. What is your perspective though? I do the other question I get a lot is just like there's so many. Like, is Bitcoin and Ethereum are those just like the main two you should invest in, or like how do people narrow it down? I mean, you're very into this, so I, I figured you'd be a good person to ask. Right, What's so your perspective I, I on that? I actually co-authored an ebook about why family offices should consider purchasing on um, Bitcoin and Ether. And so I believe if people are just getting started, obviously it's easy just to get Bitcoin Ether now, especially with PayPal allowing you to do it. And PayPal right. even lets you spend it supposedly at 26 million merchants. I've never actually gone through with I that. I just saw I that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, plug your book. What's your, what's your ebook called? So it's on why um, family offices should um, consider purchasing Bitcoin and Ether. Awesome. I always okay. get the whole long total because no, I, I'll I'm find co author because I did it with um with the guy who's the um, founder of um, Family Office Association. Okay, nice. I'll, uh, I'll make I sure I add to the, the show notes. notes. I, 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 thanks. I titled it Chain Reaction. It's a, it's a it's, it's free ebook. It's a PDF, but it's basically meant for family offices just to get them, you know, saying why you should do it. I have a feeling a lot of family offices on the download secretly been buying Bitcoin. 
Okay, do you? Yeah, maybe, right? Well, it's so much easier because, now. Like, especially with like, it's on Robinhood. There's on, it's on a lot of platforms now. Well, they, they probably wouldn't do it that way, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of cussy solutions now, a lot of institutional ways to get it. But um, I always say, obviously, because Bitcoin and Ether now have futures. So they're the two most stable ones. And Bitcoin's been around, you know, five or six years, I guess, longer, or maybe seven years longer than Ether, because I guess 2009, it was 215, 216, or whatever. So, you know, it's, it's, it's four, five or six years ahead. But there's a, I believe that there's going to be like many different blockchains succeed and many different protocols built on top, the way that, you know, Facebook, Google, and Amazon are built on top of the T- TCPI or whatever you call it, you know, the protocols, the internet, the fat layers. Yeah. And right. I think very valuable things. And it's very hard to know which ones are going to be like the Amazon version, you know, the Facebook version. And it may not be a social network or, you know, the AWS of it, but it's going to be something, you know, very valuable built on top. But I think there is a different use. Different blockchains have different, I guess, superpowers, for lack of a better term. So Bitcoin's real superpower is security. You know, it's secure. You know, it's it's you know 99.99999 percent. It's not going to be hacked. You know, everything on there is valid. You know, it's immutable. Ethereum, you know, is a state machine actually in computer science, and it's trying to be the computing platform of all of the world. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, right. a lot of people say, well, it doesn't scale and it's not fast enough, but people are building on top of it. They're working on things like DK rollups and things. I don't know which ones are going to pan out. And now they're doing this upgrade called Beacon, where there's people sharding. I think it's um, 16 different ways, four different Beacon chains, which I guess is 64 kind of chains or side chains. I'm not sure the exact technical definition, but all this is still kind of experimental, but it's still kind of working in the real world, and people are building real-world applications on top of Ethereum with DeFi. So I think decentralized finance is the actual threat to the banking industry, not Bitcoin. Okay. Decentralized finance. So what bankers should learn about is DeFi and the products so they can start working and integrating themselves. Like Mark Zuckerberg says, if we don't disrupt Facebook, someone's going to disrupt us. But the bankers should be thinking that way, that Bitcoin isn't the real threat. And I always kind of giggle, too, when people say Bitcoin's a threat to um, the dollar and all. Yeah, I don't yeah. necessarily think it is, because if we have a dollar crisis, they could kind of like fractionally back at some buy Bitcoin to bring back confidence. And we're going to have central bank digital currencies. And I've been going around saying that. You know, when the Fed does that, they're probably going to do a public-private partnership with someone like Circles USDC. I know there's rumors that I don't know if they're true. That someone that's already been doing this USDC for a number of years and is working with Visa and stuff. Because you don't what, want to just what run is this that? out as an experiment when it's people's money. What, yeah, for sure, right? <laughs> right? What, 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 what does that mean? So you're saying, you're saying the government could kind of join up with some of these like private firms in the crypto space to like leverage the dollar, essentially? Right. So I believe eventually, and I said this on this thing called Exploring the Block, that um, in five years, this was in 2018, that paper money would essentially disappear. Now, there might still be some out there, but we're going to, if it's not cryptocurrency, it's going to be more and more just using your iPhone, Apple Pay, tapping on something, or Samsung Pay, Pay, or something of that nature. But I actually believe there there will be a stable coins used and a central bank digital currency, which they're talking about something may happen in July. So that probably okay. means when they say July of this year, that probably means Next it takes year. them a year longer. Yeah, for sure, like right? that. Yeah. But it's basically a stable coin, a cryptocurrency on a blockchain. Now it won't be like Bitcoin. It'll be probably more centralized where um, you know the Fed will issue US dollars and maybe they'll partner with using USDC with Circle. And so your dollars will now be digital. Now I have a feeling that too, like right now, you know how you have a bank checking account. Some people might have some money in their checking account or different checking accounts, sure. and it's in fiat dollars. That there's going to be some kind of on ramp, a protocol where it's a proof of verification of your bank account, and then when you go to transfer it, it turn it automatically mints crypto money, a crypto dollar, and, you, and that way I can send it to you easily, fast, instant settlement. Oh. Initially, because okay. I don't think they can initially turn every dollar in the bank to crypto. That's kind of 
kind of hard. I think that would be an owner's project. I, well, yeah, it just seems like there's not enough buy-in maybe yet either. I feel like there's a lot of people who still are a little worried. Like I had a question this morning from a buddy who just said, like, I don't really understand it. I feel like it's way too volatile. Like the price is all over the place. Like how do we ever, like how is there ever enough stability in it to fully move Right, to but stablecoin is backed one-to-one by the U.S. dollar. So you know how the U.S. dollar is backed by the full faith and credit Sta- of the U.S. See, I've never even government. heard of that. Stable coin? Right, so stable, right, one dollar. There's many different types of stable coins, but in the case of a Fed coin, for lack of a better term, or central bank digital currency, like one U.S. dollar would equal one USDC or U.S. Fed coin. There okay. actually is a USDC by circle now that's already out there. So it's pegged one-to-one literally to the dollar. So for every dollar in circulation, the Fed just goes, booyah, magic, it's there. Yeah. It would be backed by one stable coin. So when I send you a stable coin that's Fed coin, and maybe they're using USDC and the technology for that, they may not call it USDC, or they may just keep the name and you know, sure. add backed by the Fed or something like that. Yeah. You will know with 100% confidence, it's just like a paper greenback. Oh, interesting. Okay. And so as like, is the, the Fed pumps is more money in? Always $1. Always $1, only $1 on the stable coin. Got it. If, so it's, if, if it's backed by a dollar. There are ones that are algorithmic and not necessarily 100% backed yeah. and could break the buck theoretically. That sure. actually happened that with this sense. thing called Tether. But um, if it's backed by the U.S. government, I'm pretty confident. If they say it's a dollar, it's a dollar. <laughs> okay. So and if, the, if the Fed pumps more money in like they've been doing, does that mean there's more stable coins that are available? Like the supply goes up? Right, so they could create more stable coins. And a lot of people say, yeah, that's just basically taking a dollar and making it digital. Because I would argue the dollar is kind of already digital. I mean, your bank account a lot of times, it's just a digital transfer. A digital I was going to say, you don't really ever see the actual bills. So he, it's kind of funny. Here's where I think the importance and the big thing that everyone misses about central bank digital currencies. It's good and bad. So they get a lot of control. So a central bank could literally communicate with James and Shane and say, okay, here's your Fed wallet, your digital wallet, your USDC bank account, whatever you want to call it. Oh, by the way, we don't like the way you're using your money. So if you're going to keep a million dollars in cash, we don't think that's very you know, productive. We're going to charge you a negative interest rate of negative 5%. So now for holding that money, you're paying a 5% negative interest rate. But they oh. may say to some other guy, just make up a name, Jeff, you only have $200 in your account. We're not going to charge you a negative interest rate. We're just going to let you be. Huh. Okay. And then they could they could use incentives and say, okay, if you buy this or if you buy that, we're going to give you a rebate or we're going to incentivize people to buy or do spend on certain things. We're going to pay you an interest rate or give you more coins or let you stake your – I mean they could personal, literally personalize our interaction with a central bank. That's crazy. But I do see a lot of good things too because you know how everyone's always saying like eliminate certain taxes and make a flat tax? Well, I'm totally in agreement that there shouldn't be capital gains tax. There shouldn't be income tax. They should make consumption taxes. But I feel like I don't want the I don't want the I don't want the I don't want the people unintended consequences. The people at the IRS who are very good people to lose their jobs because a lot of those people have kids. They have husband and wives. They may have parents they're supporting. So you don't want them to lose their jobs just because you don't want the hassle of filling out your taxes. So with a central bank digital currency, taxes could be instantaneous as soon as you spend it. It's tax. And now this is controversial thought I have too. I, I don't know if I said this on your podcast, a transaction tax. So if all stocks settle in the blockchain, it could be literally fractions of a penny going out like eight decimal points or okay. in the case of an ERC 20, 18 decimal points. And every time you make a buy or a sell, just a very little fraction is taxed. But if that happens you know, hundreds of millions of times, trillions of times, that adds up. And oh, it could be the sure. same thing on any kind of transaction. So you have a consumption tax. Say, if I buy this book from Amazon, which one of my startups did, I get 
hit with a tax, which is a little bit higher than the tax now. And then there's also another tax, it's fractions of a penny that's, you know, because it's now been turned into tokenization, that right. also goes into another fund at a different level. And it would get the tax up more. And then we don't have all the hassle with income taxes. We don't have all these people taking these deductions that people say is fair, isn't fair. And then everybody is kind of paying their fair share based on how they're transacting, how they're consuming. And then certain things like where people say, you know, are off book of black market things where people are using paper money. That's why I always laugh when they say crypto is used for illicit things. More things are used for illicit things of paper money than anything. But once paper <laughs> money goes on a blockchain, it can all be tracked. There's a chain analysis, elliptic software. They can trace back everything that ever happened with a Bitcoin that you have in your wallet, where it came from. And I think the better the technology gets, they're going to be able to trace it all the way back to the Genesis block, and maybe they already can. But on the blockchain, when people say like Bitcoin is anonymous, that's a lie. It's pseudo-anonymous, but they can trace back all the transactions and via your wallet and going to the internet IP addresses, even though people are using VPNs, they can triangulate that signal and they can come pretty close and figure out it's you by your habits and your patterns. Because as humans, you're going to slip up and identify yourself somehow. Now, they might not be able to identify you just like that. That's yeah. how they caught like people like it's Silk Road. Well, I just Bitcoin, watched that movie caught, a couple and, weeks and ago. They yeah, people doing um like people using Bitcoin to pay to do like illicit terrorist things and they catch them. How do you think they catch them? If it's anonymous, how the hell do they catch them? It's not anonymous. That's a little crap. So do you think then from that standpoint, I mean, is, is there a whole group of people who just will never want to adopt it because they'd rather use cash because it's easy, it's harder to get caught, I guess? Yeah, but I think if they outlaw cash, not necessarily outlaw, but it, it's really not taken. Because I've heard like in China that um, if you take out paper money, people look at you like you have three heads. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's I, total Samsung Pay and all this other stuff. I mean, it's it's and, it's funny. Like I realized the other day, like I pulled my credit card out and I felt like I got a weird look because I I always use. I mean, everyone uses their phone to pay now, and it was like, oh, that's what I do with Walgreens for my prescriptions. Yeah, I, I don't even pull out a credit card or nothing. They got on the app. I put in a credit card, and when I go there, you hit out your phone. And now they even have things with credit cards where it's touchless. You don't even stick it into the machine anymore. You just like, yeah, like you just that. tap it. And, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's pretty, it's pretty cool. So technology is really evolving. I always say technology is neither good or evil. It's it's how it's used. There's going to be unintended sure. consequences, and we could just adjust to those that weren't meant to be evil. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Hundred um, percent. To build on that, the other thing I really wanted to ask you is NFTs. So. I think a lot of people, if you're even awake on the internet, you've probably seen some sort of news around NFTs. What can you just explain to everyone high level because you're the pro at this? What is what is an NFT and like why should people care? So NFT stands for non-fungible token. And, and people have been doing these, you know, for years. I mean, 2016, 2017. It's just nobody cared till lately. Because what happens when all of a sudden like something goes for 69 point some million dollars and at Christie's, everyone gets excited, just like when Bitcoin's going up a lot in price, everyone right. gets excited. But really, it's great because a non-fungible token, it can be one of a kind or it can be like a one of 12. So, for instance, a piece of artwork, it could be one of one documented on the blockchain secret so you know it's authentic. So, for instance, let's say I bought a Patrick Mahomes um, NFT. There's like 200 some of this one I bought. Okay. And they're numbered. But it's cool because I mean, that's so what, but what is it? Bit. What does it, it look like? like what, what is it? He actually sent it from him. So it's a, it's like a, in a painting thing, a picture, and then he's going like his mouth is moving, he's cheering because it's like a video image. But it doesn't have to be a video image. It could be an artwork. So you could make a drawing if you're an artist, or you could just make a drawing and make an NFT of your work, and you could make it one of a kind, like a crypto kitty or crypto punk, or you could make it a series, one of twelve. Because you know how a lot of artists do these things called prints, and yeah. they'll do like one of twelve. You could yeah. do that with ERC eleven fifty five and some of the other technologies and have like one of twenty three, you know, one of a hundred if you wanted to. 
And it's funny too, because people say, well, now these are digital forever. They're not as rare. Well, that's not true either. You can burn them. So if you have one of 10, you could actually buy all 10, burn nine of them on the blockchain. And now there's only one. And it's funny because oh, really? some people bought a real, a real world art thing and um, they made an NFT version and they, and they went on YouTube. They made a video of them burning the freaking real artwork that was worth a lot of money. And then they sold the NFT for like multiples of that. Oh, Insane. Wow. Oh, that's but crazy. People don't realize NFTs can be video too. So I've collected So yeah, what can, what can they be? They can be like videos. Can they be audio? And can they be like yes, all kinds music, of music, music, oh, music. So my personal opinion, I'm a little biased, that this is a great application for music and it's going to change everything. So I have the um, theory that if you just have a hundred or a thousand fans who really love you with an NFT, you almost don't need the record label anymore. You can we talked about this last time, I think, like music. your thousand closest fans. Right. So the thing is, is that um, if you're a musician, you can pre-sell your album. And eventually, this probably is getting more to being the security. We're getting to the gray here. You could pre-sell your album and your fans could have an ownership right to some of the future royalties of the song. And another thing I also like about these NFTs is if I create a piece of art and someone buys it, then in perpetuity, I can keep getting a royalty of 10% every time the next guy sells it. Now, right now, that's not programmed into the smart contract, but eventually it will. So it's all based on trust of the platforms. Yeah. But obviously, this is building the trust. The, I believe the platforms are very trustworthy, the, you know, the ones who started sure. this space. But with music, it's going to be too. So every time if I do a music MP3 uploaded as an NFT, if somebody buys that song and they sell it to someone else, every time it's sold, I'll get a royalty or a piece of that. That's cool. Oh, I didn't realize that part. So, but like, how how does like the Patrick Mahomes thing you bought? Like, who owns it? How do how do you own the like underlying asset to sell? Right. So it's a little bit complicated, and I'm not like an IP lawyer, so I don't actually own the IP of that picture, but I own that particular thing, the sign of the blockchain by Patrick Mahomes and the creator of that particular one NFT of Patrick Mahomes. And now it's not an NFL licensed NFT. So one of my theses is in speculation. I paid twenty five hundred for this because I believe that the NFL is going to do like the NBA and have truly licensed NFL products. So you're going to have to only do an NFT if you're an NFL player through a licensed product. So these that are actually created by Patrick Mahomes himself will be so damn rare that God knows what it'll be worth. I mean, people oh, have already okay. have, and people can see you bought it. Have already like emailed you or contacting the platform, saying, "Hey, I'll give you thirty five hundred." The minute I bought it, someone's already offering more. And the next day, someone's offering four thousand. Now somebody's offering like seven thousand. I think last night. And I'm thinking, you know, if these things become like I hate Wait, to this say, is for the one you bought. This is for the one for you the, bought. Yeah, but it was only twenty five hundred for it. There, there's That's some crazy there though. Paid, there, there's things out there where people have paid like the Beeple thing that went for you know sixty nine million. The original Beeple twenty art. Some guy paid, I believe, $2 million, and what he did was he wrapped the NFT of 20 um, Beeple Works, and he made a token where people could buy it in fractions. And at one point, it was trading oh. over 130, 130 million market cap, and now it's came down to like 30 million market cap. But, yeah. And I don't know how that's not a security, because people are taking crypto kitties and wrapping them and, and selling them as a package, as a token, but they're not considered securities yet. So I think that's a real gray area. I have a feeling regulation is going to call them securities. See, I think, I think this is so interesting, but it's so confusing to me. So like... If for this podcast, for example, like I have the actual, you know, MP3s of all the all the episodes I've done, could I like technically sell one as an NFT? You certainly could. You could clip like maybe not me, but somebody who's like really famous. Like if you got Mark Cuban talking about something, and you could clip that MP3 and um turn it into an NFT and sell it. You certainly could. But could and then could someone else, since this is like on the internet, could someone else clip my stuff and sell it? Like, how would I know? They certainly could. And um, 
it's just like on, on TikTok, you made that one video and I posted the same video on my TikTok. Right. And, um, but yeah, it certainly could. So, so and it's just like the fair use thing with YouTube, as long as someone doesn't copy an entire podcast or whatever, they can take little pieces and it's under fair use as long as they don't take too much. Right. So, but with the NFT though, it's the authentication. So, you know, when you buy an NBA top shop, which is on the Ethereum blockchain, it's on the flow blockchain that um, it's authentic. NBA signed and the signature says it's authentic. Just like when you buy a baseball card, you don't know if it's counterfeit or not, but people go and get them graded and it'll say like 10 out of 10. So it makes it more valuable that it's 10 rated or nine rated out of 10. Okay. Even though I might have a Michael Jordan card in my closet that's the same condition, but until I get it graded and pay that money, it's worth like fractions of that. And the nice thing about the NFT is you know it's authentic. And same thing with autographs and stuff, you don't have to get it graded. And people say, well, then the value of baseball cards, people were dumb and they put them in their bicycle things and it pits them against the wall so they won't be damaged. Yeah, but with blockchain, people can lose their private keys and things like that. Now, maybe not on something centralized, but in uncentralized things where people are putting them in their wallets, like their MetaMask. Yeah. If you lose your keys, you lose all the crap in your wallet. So you could be yeah. losing all these NFTs. So they can get lost. I mean, millions of Bitcoin have been lost over time. Like, there could only ever be 21 million Bitcoin ever minted, and it's about 900 a day that's mine. But the okay. thing is, is when we get to the max, there's not going to be 21 million out there. There's, I don't know the exact number, but there's millions of Bitcoin that have been lost that it can never be reaccessed. Isn't that crazy? Unless, some, unless somebody figures out a way to find all those secret keys and reaccess them. Right, right. <laughs> I had a similar situation. I was pissed off. Uh, I have a Coinbase account. That's like where I bought my first Ethereum piece. And um, the like Google Authenticator app, which is what I need to log in, just like it like log itself out of my, like the, the thing that like repeats itself every minute, like the code. And I like, can't get it back. So I've been like going back and forth with Coinbase for like a month trying to figure out like, how do I get in my account? Cause I didn't lose my key. I have my key, but I, I have to authenticate it and I can't do it. I'm like, what the hell? Right. That's and so when Coinbase holds your, holds your crypto, you actually don't have the private keys. They do. So technically not your keys. True. They say not your Bitcoin. Yeah. And now they're saying if it's not on IPFS, it's not your NFT. But anyway, regardless of that though. Yeah. But that's centralized. So Coinbase, eventually should be able to let you in your account. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure I'll figure Not it out. Sure, but that's... They, they definitely can let you in your account because they can, they can, um, I guess, what is it called? Deactivate the authenticator 2FA on that. And you can yeah. get back in and they can send you a text or something to your phone to prove you're you. And I believe they can have you because I know someone tried to hack my Coinbase three years ago and they, they froze it because people were just attacking it in 2017. Oh, no. And I had to, you know, I've been sim hacked like four times. So what I had to do was I had to literally take a picture of my license, scan it in, a selfie of me holding my license. And they had to verify it was me and they un it took them like forever. Oh, that's what I just had to do. It. I just did this yesterday. I had to like take a picture of myself, take a picture of my license, that whole thing. And this was in 2017 when this wasn't even that common. This is like common practice. And I remember two or three days went by and I'm not hearing anything, but I, I know a guy who works there and I started complaining to him that he got tired <laughs> of being a pain in the ass and they, they took care of it, but it still took him a week because someone got back to me and then like a week later. So it took him some time because I think yeah. in all fairness and for your safety, they had to really make sure you was really you. <laughs> yeah, which makes sense, which I liked. I appreciated like the added, you know, effort. So it's, it's so interesting. So NFTs, I think those are, that's like a huge topic right now that people are really getting into on the Bitcoin side. Like I wanted to get your thoughts on um, some of the news that I thought was interesting since we talked last time. And the big one for me, I'm a huge, huge, huge Tesla proponent. I talk about it all the time. Uh, what was Tesla? <laughs> so, yeah, the, the best. What is your thoughts on, uh, on them, you know, getting into the Bitcoin game? Do you think that's like a big step in the right direction to get, you know, some of these like corporate entities to start using it? 
So I do think a lot of corporates are going to end up putting Bitcoin in their balance sheet for this one very reason alone. Interest rates are zero. So if you issue a convertible bond like uh, Michael Saylor did with uh, MicroStrategy, and I'm not saying he's lending out or anything because I don't know what the rules are. But eventually, though, you know how you get nothing on your treasuries? You could buy, you could issue a convertible bond at basically zero, buy Bitcoin in the market over the counter from a big institution, and then um, lend out your Bitcoin at 6%. Well, if you have billions of dollars of Bitcoin earning 6% versus cash that would have been earning nothing billions, that's a, a new cash flow. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, 100%. So I think for that reason alone, if, if it's allowed, and I'm not sure what the gap accounting rules are, many corporations would do it. But even if that's not allowed, no one's doing that. Just the fact that the Fed printed like 25% more money this year, I, that might not be the right number. And you know, your purchasing power over time, the cost of capital, it's getting expensive. If you hold, hold the Bitcoin and it stays level, even if it's volatile over time, as long as you can't be margin called out like we talked about with leverage, yeah. over time, and nobody knows, I believe that Bitcoin and Ethereum have now turned into like the new millennials original version of the Dow and S&P. So Bitcoin being like 50, 60, 40K because it moves around, I guess it's 59K or whatever this day, and Ethereum hit an all-time high, 2074, right before I logged on. What if Bitcoin Oh, did it? Ethereum time, did? Right. What if Bitcoin over time is a million and then two million and three million? And over time, it's like the stock market just keeps going like this because the people always said when a Dow hit 10,000, it could never get any higher. Even when it hit 1,000 <laughs> many years before we were born, and now right. it's like 30,000. So why couldn't Bitcoin be like the new age and the millennials and the Gen Z or whatever they call them? Sure. Now, and S&P be, as far as pricing goes, the Ethereum. Right. Right. Yeah, good. Right. So obviously there's going to be dips and stuff, but what I was saying is just because something is $60,000 doesn't necessarily mean it's expensive. Got it. Yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. And that was something I was trying to explain to someone. It's a, it's a supply and demand game, right, at the end of the day. And you can divide you can divide Bitcoin into 100 million Satoshis in one Bitcoin. And many Bitcoiners and many um, crypto people actually price everything in Satoshis, even like other coins. What I is that? What's a, that did I, you call it a Satoshi? What'd you say? Right, a Satoshi. So when you buy Bitcoin on Cash App, it actually denominates it in Satoshi. So the smallest denomination of one Bitcoin is a Satoshi. And there's 100 million Satoshis. I think that's the exact number. And, um, <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. So it's like a, it's like a yeah. sub. Uh, it's like a it's sub. Like, it's like a slice of the fractional version, but they're calling it Satoshis. Kind of an honor of Satoshi Nakamoma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I love that. Freaking name. Yeah. It's so funny, too, because I was just on a podcast debating on why Bitcoin isn't a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid scheme. And, <laughs> and, yeah, I, and I said stuff like, you know, well, they have futures of it. There's going to be ETS. But I mean, it's just ridiculous now that people would think it's actually a Ponzi or a pyramid scheme because in a Ponzi or a pyramid scheme, somebody is like issuing something, promoting the shit out of it, and then giving you false statements. Yeah. And then they're, you know, cashing out the early people and actually giving them something. Who's doing that in this case? For all we know, we don't know who invented this thing. I mean, it's built on Shaw 256. It could be the government invented this. We don't know. Isn't that do you think we'll we'll ever figure it out? I think a lot of a lot of people maybe don't know that that listen to this, that we don't know who created it. It's not like a no one knows. Right, and that's why it's a good reason to be suspicious. So what we know is that some computer server, that was Satoshi guy, sent an email to a guy named Hal Finney who unfortunately got AOS and passed away. And a bunch of people in the cypherpunk community on some kind of chat room all got this email to work on this open source project, you know, the original Bitcoin. A bunch of people worked on it. So it's a group effort. It's not one guy, one gal. And okay. I believe maybe even a supercomputer may have helped work on this because it could never solve the double spend problem, the Byzantine General's problem, until Bitcoin happened. And there were plenty of people before Bitcoin that tried to do a Bitcoin, and the government shut them down for trying to print illegal money. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's funny. 
There were things called eCash and eGold that was like the original, and some others I don't even know the damn names of. And it's funny because a lot of these original pioneers who worked on those things allegedly worked on this Bitcoin. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it does. Okay. So interesting. So much stuff. I just learned a ton. I appreciate this. Um, is there anything as we kind of wrap up, is there anything like if you're someone listening to this and a lot of people that listen to this are into finance or they're into just like trying to learn, um, what would be your suggestion as far as like where to go, how to learn, like how to get involved with cryptocurrencies and NFTs and all that fun stuff? Well, I would definitely say like one of my sayings is influencers are eating the world. And now if you're an influencer, you have a massive distribution. That's a whole new currency. And I think the next big thing is going to be social tokens. Okay. That people can just you, know, you just start Googling on the internet, learning about NFTs, learning about social tokens, learning about you know Bitcoin, Ether, the other blockchains are out there, and kind of like read about it and form their own thesis, learn about the people, and then use their own critical thinking and say, hey, because I look at it this way. People ask the wrong question when they get into things about you know the Ponzi scheme, the um, pyramid scheme, intrinsic value, because that means different things to different people. But what if, if you only had 1% of liquid net worth in Bitcoin, and you're right, the outcome could be tremendous, life-changing, and even save you. If we have hyperinflation and the dollar just goes kaputs, and Bitcoin just holds its value relative, if you lose 99% of your net worth in dollars, that could be catastrophic, no matter who you are. And yeah. Bitcoin could go to the moon, actually equaling that out, because a lot of people don't realize price in gold, the stock market hasn't really gone hardly anywhere in the last probably since the 70s. I don't know the exact numbers. And in Bitcoin, the stock market, since Bitcoin has been invented, obviously is way behind <laughs> price right. in Bitcoin, because sure. everything's relative. How you price it, price it in gold, price it in Bitcoin, price it in this, price in oil, different commodities. So you're, oh, you're just saying, you yeah, you're it. just saying the, yeah, the Bitcoin market has outpaced the stock market, it's outpaced gold, right. it's outpaced everything. Right, so if you, if you, price, if you price the stock market in gold, I believe the stock market isn't really up. It's up in U.S. dollar terms. If you price oh, really? the stock market in Bitcoin, it's obviously way down. If you price the stock market in oil, I'm not sure where it stands. But the point I'm making is, is over the time, it seems like the purchasing power of the dollar does get less and less. Even though the CPI inflation isn't real high, the purchasing power of the dollar just seems over time seems to be debased or whatever you want to call it. It buys Interesting. Less. I've never heard anyone say that before. So for you personally, just so people can get kind of a perspective, how, um, even just like on a percentage basis, how much do you personally like to keep in like cash reserves, like checking savings and how much do you like to have in like, in like the stock market and how much do you like to have in, you know, the crypto world? How do you like spread all that out? So I, I believe now, and I'm trying to transfer over, I believe Bitcoin has become kind of like a new internet money savings account. So over time, I am every week taking more money out of cash and going in, in, into more Bitcoin and lending it out at the six and a half percent. Ah, okay. To actually get an interest rate. But obviously, you don't put all your Bitcoin there because you have to diversify into cold storage, paper storage, you know, some on exchanges, some on software wallets, because if something happens, and you're kind of decentralizing yourself. Sure. So, so I believe with the dollar and the way the stock market, I think there's hyperinflation in the stock market. So I'm really big into having you know, 70 or 80% of your assets in the stock market, you know, 10% or so in, in private, private investments. And, you know, you get drift because some of them on paper are allegedly worth more when they get marked up. But until that money is in your hands or in the bank, for lack of a better term, it's not yeah. really your money because it can okay. still go to zero. Got and it. I think, you know, in Bitcoin, you should try to maintain 1% to 2%. But I'm even going to try to maybe allocate that up to 5 over time between, you know, Bitcoin and Ether and maybe some other. And then some of the more speculative cryptos 
maybe even 1% because some of them could have 1,000x returns. And now I'm getting into stuff like, even though it's kind of collecting too, that there should be some allocation to, I think even institutions are going to go to allocations into, believe it or not, stuff like shoes, like oh. Air Jordans. Yeah. Because I'm in the baseball card and sports card, so I have some allocation ah. there just because I have so collected them. So you but probably now know a lot. Turn that you... into, Sorry, into NFTs collecting and yeah. social tokens will be part of it because I'm looking for asymmetric bets. Okay, got it. So, so remember, I think I mentioned like... before: seventy percent core, twenty percent complementary, and ten yeah. percent other bets. And what's in those other bets may change, but I do believe everyone should have some exposure to cryptocurrency. Some, whatever that. they feel comfortable with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and you really are you're keeping like ten to twenty percent in like cash like true cash like checking savings uh, I, would, I wouldn't say it's true cash I, I would say now i have less true cash than ever okay and part of that too is because the stock market last year was like believe it or not with covid it was the best return ever <laughs> yeah i know that so you had drift going that way and then all your crypto went that way and i mean uh, on paper all, all, if you want to count that as part of your net worth all your michael jordan cards in your closet went that way so it's it's everything. Yeah. Seven, what's going to, my worry percentage. is like what happens once, once it's all been going, there's so many new people involved and all they've experienced is up. What's going to happen when it comes down, people are going to have to really hold on tight. Right. As long as you're not on margin, then you can choose whether or not to exit something. But what worries me is some of these people on margin and all these people learning about options and things only went up. But yeah. I think that that's not exactly true in the GameStop thing. A lot of them did experience losses on some of the contracts expiring. True. So it's not like they saw just just all that's just a media thing. Yeah. But um, I also think it's it's kind of a lie when they say you know retail is the end and destroys the market. What happens is retail does come in at the end historically, but the institutions and all leverage up to the moon when they see the parabolic rise. And then when it turns, their leverage forces everyone out. And then the retail right. panics because of psychology. But I think the psychology of younger people, the Generation Z or whatever they call them, is different. They got the diamond hands like that Olympic yeah. mentality. <laughs> I don't know that they're necessarily going to panic out the way these other people do. It's a whole different culture, a whole different way of thinking. It's true. Yeah, you're right. 100%. Things are changing so in a dramatic way. People just need to read, foster critical thinking, make their own decisions. And... Um, you know, make, make wise choices on how they allocate. Think about, okay, so what are my goals in life? Does buying a little bit of Bitcoin, if I lose it all and it goes to zero, does that change my life, change my goals? And if it doesn't, only 1% or 5% or 3%, what if everything goes right and it becomes worth millions of dollars just for one Bitcoin? How would that change my life, enhance my life, help me do my goals? Yes, I love that. That's a perfect way to end the podcast. James, <laughs> thank you so much, man. This is always sure. fun talking to you. I always feel like I learned so much. I got to like keep up and take notes. So I love it. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it, man. Awesome. Yeah, and if people would follow me because I'm trying to get more followers. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say plug everything. How do people, how do people yeah, get a hold of you? How do people follow you? All that fun stuff. <laughs> on Twitter, um, at Primal Key. And then I'm still working on that TikTok. When I first talked before, I followed you. I, I gave you, I, I gave you a follow. To, I, yeah, thanks, man. I think I had like, what, seven or nine followers. Now I have like 90 or something. Love so it. That's, um, at the Asian Cowboy, and Re then uh, at Asian Cowboy, I love the yeah, it's the the there's a V in front the of it because some okay. other dude okay. is and I'll add and all this on, to the show notes. Yeah, and then on Instagram, I think um at Asian Cowboy twelve because there was already other Asian Cowboys, and I put the twelve because Tom Brady's number twelve, and he's my hero, one of my heroes. Oh, okay, my big Tom Brady fan, got it. And oh, uh, just any, anyone who's like a super champion. Yeah. I, actually, Mahomes is my favorite quarterback, but um, and then what else am I on? I think that's. That's pretty much all. Oh, I made a YouTube channel too, Asian Cowboy, but I haven't really done a lot with that. I just started. Love it. Like six, people, six, 
people joined it. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where you just got to be on everywhere. People end up finding you. It's no, you know what I mean? I, I've been, I've been actually really surprised. I don't have as many followers as you do on TikTok, uh, but that platform is wild with just organic reach. Like, it is. You know, it's I've had crazy. some videos. I have like 20 something followers and I, and I, uh, I, I each video gets five, 600, 700 views now, which is crazy. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I've been experimenting with hashtagging to see it gets, it gets more views. And I'm noticing over time, I'm getting more views. And some things I thought would get views, nobody cares, gets like six views. And then something I thought was, yeah, let's try this. It, it, like, I think my most is not a lot, but it's like 900 views, but that's it's better than six views. Yeah. And then one of me playing my guitar because he got 700 views, and most of them only got like 100. <laughs> love it. No, I love it. No, it's, so, it's such a cool platform. Um, so, yeah, nice job plugging those. I'll make sure I add all those to the show notes and I'll share them out. And I'll make sure I, uh, when I do the intro and everything, I'll add them. Um, anything else you want to finish off with before we, uh, we finish up this episode? No, that's pretty much it. And I always just say to everybody out there, regardless of their age, we live in the best times ever. And technology is making our lives better than even like the Rockefellers 100 years ago. And some people think, oh, I'm 50 or 60, whatever age, you know, my life's basically over. That's not even true because now with technology, you're going to live to be 110. If you make it that long, you might live to be 200. Right. You might live to be as old as Yoda. One of my heroes, Yoda from Star Wars, might be 1,000 years old. You never know. I was going to say, I feel that way. I'm like trying to be healthy and do all the right things. but And you never know. I feel like at the rate that we're progressing, who knows how long we'll all live it's kind of crazy so might as well invest and do the right things now right right get in learn <laughs> love it james thank you so much as always man i appreciate the time and uh this yeah, is a fun episode absolutely man anytime Thanks, man. awesome i'll talk to Take you soon care. all right bye. see ya bye